What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange as we roll into the back half of this trading day with stocks uh, moving to session highs, really. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Two data points for the slowdown camp this morning. Producer prices cooling sharply and jobless claims rising. We'll talk about why the economic slowdown could be closer than you think. Plus, the recent bank collapses, touching off concerns about systemic risk in the financial sector. But what if it doesn't stop there? One five-star fund manager will uh, lay out the warning signs of a potential sovereign credibility crisis that he sees. And Bitcoin, of course, surging this year back above 30K. But one key factor in that climb is missing, what it is and why it has one analyst concerned. We'll get to that in just a bit. But first, Dom Chu is back with today's market. I am, and it's green for sure. Bitcoin above 30, Ether above 2,000. Yes. Weird day for crypto. Anyway, bullish across the board. It's been green all day, but we are, as Kelly points out, at session highs right now. The S&P 500 sitting at 41.26. That's the level, up about 34 points. At the highs of the session, we were up 35, so we're sitting just near those session highs and up about nine points at the lows. So again, a generally positive day. Two-thirds of a percent gain for the Dow Industrials, up 225 points, 33,869. The Nasdaq Composite really helping to pace the advance right now, up about 1.5% to 12,107. That's good for 177 points. One place that's kind of driving some of that technology optimism today is just solar energy in general. Check out what's happening with one of the big solar ETFs, ticker TAN, T-A-N. The Invesco Solar ETF is up 2 bucks 42 cents, 3% gains there. This is driven in part by a little bit of optimism around possibly a Deutsche Bank call out of Enphase Energy. They're putting a catalyst buy recommendation on there. They think the earnings results coming out later on this month will show some positive upside. Meanwhile, they're downgrading First Solar, which is still up 1.5%, given its big run-up over the course of the last several months here. So so again, an interesting call on solar has put a lot of focus on that today. By the way, Solar Edge, which is not shown here, the second best performer in the S&P next to Enphase Energy. And one stock in particular that's far and away the worst performing stock in the entire S&P 500 is Progressive Corporation. Now, you may recall that just this past week, it hit a record high. It's fallen steeply from there, down about 7% right now on the heels of an earnings report that missed analyst estimates largely for the earnings side of things, revenues came in a little bit better than expectations. But Kelly, it's because they had an elevated loss ratio. Wow. More property casualty losses than some had forecast for. But that's what's moving progressive, at least, down 7% right now after a huge, you can see their stellar run over the last oh, year. This has been the defensive, the place to be. Dom, just yesterday, Warren Buffett, when he was talking about cyclical weakness in his other businesses and railroads, was saying, hey, at least insurance is going to have a good year. Well, insurance, and it still has had a good year. Meanwhile, if you take a look at the results a little bit more closely for Progressive, Kelly, the top line growth was there. The yeah. underwriting was there. They got people to kind of insure stuff more. They just took bigger losses given some of the events that we've seen over the course of the past quarter. So Progressive, yes, it's still steadily to the upside. It's been a safe play for a lot of folks out there, but again, a little sell the news today. Got to get flow on that. Right. See what she thinks. Dom, thank you. 
All right, let's call it two points for those expecting a recession here in the U.S. First, inflation showing further signs of cooling in today's PPI number on the heels of yesterday's consumer read. And jobless claims worsening again. They just hit their highest level in more than a year. My next guest says the Fed's hiking cycle is over. Let's bring in Michelle Girard. She's head of U.S. at NetWest Markets and CNBC's Steve Leesman. Was that a grimace, Michelle, that I saw there? Did I overplay it? (laughs) Well, no, no, no. I think that's right. I I mean, I don't know if it's two points for the recession camp. I think it's certainly two points for those of us who do think that the Fed hiking cycle is over. Now, again, you know, am I dug in or are we dug in here that the Fed couldn't go again in May? I mean, you know, the bottom line is it's kind of like we felt last month. You're you're really essentially at the peak. I think as we talked about the numbers over the last couple of days, the tone of the FOMC minutes yesterday, all the best all of that has us feeling a little more confident that you won't see another another move in May. It's not the consensus, though. You okay going against that? You think they're going to come around in the next few weeks? Well, I mean, again, I just think it's, you know, the minutes yesterday did suggest several uh, would have been in favor of pausing. And and so I think since then, the data haven't really been compelling. And if anything, should give them more confidence that the the things are moving in the direction that they anticipate. But I think it's also just about going forward, the expectations about about where we're headed. I I do think we're going to see weaker consumer uh, spending data with retail sales tomorrow. There's signs of of a bit more stress on the consumer side. I think we're all concerned about a credit crunch fighting this year. I mean, if you think all of that's coming at you, you've already done so much. The inflation numbers are moving in the right direction. Really, what does another 25 do, quite honestly? And and from that standpoint, uh, it just seems like the the path of, of perhaps least risk is is to pause here and and to get just get more information. Steve, you coined the term pause posse. And I'm curious what you make <laughs> of the uh, and, and I don't know whether that's going to be this meeting or the next one. But you, but you see it forming. You see it forming. You know, you put me in a tough place here, Kelly, between the consensus and the brilliant Michelle Girard. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm going to side with the consensus right now only because the Fed speak I've heard suggests that some People who are not necessarily dyed in the wool hawks, to mix a metaphor there, um, still seem to be talking about more work to do. It was a phrase that Mary Daly used. It sounded to me like John Williams. It sounded to me like Tom Barkin are all folks who thinks that the Fed ought to go further and do more. And there's the consensus, which is kind of Michelle's in that 30 percent camp, which, uh, you know, I, I have deep respect for. But here's the thing. I'm going to take a bit of a pass on saying which way and how, because um To me, it's going to be determined by what we know about the banking system. And so we have the H41 coming out today, which I've called the uh, the Fed's buffet or salad (laughs) buffet, um, which will tell us how much money banks are still taking down or borrowing at the window and and the various windows that are available. Give us a sense of stress in the banking system. And then we'll watch the bank earnings to see uh, what extent there's still uh, remaining stress in the banking system. Remember, the uh, staff yesterday in their decision to say, uh, that recession or mild recession is now the baseline. Uh, it was predicated on banking uh, uh, credit tightening in, in in the system. If that seems to be the case, then maybe guys like Fed Chair Powell might side with the Gerard camp and join the the pause posse, so to speak. Um, but I'm just not hearing it just yet. 
How much is the retail yeah. sales going to matter, Steve? Let me just point out what Michelle cited a moment ago. Bank of America Institute's publicly released consumer spending data uh, uses consumer bank uh, information that they have, obviously. It echoes this thing we heard from Barkin about slowing consumer spending in March. Uh, lower card spending, minus 1.5% month on month. They cite slowing wages, lower tax refunds, and expiration of those SNAP yeah. benefits. I, I'll, I'll respond real quickly and give Michelle the floor. But all of this, uh, Kelly, as I've said before, has to run through the inflation channel. They don't care if consumer spending is lower right now, as long as lower consumer spending leads to uh, less inflation. And they're not going to be so concerned that there's less bank lending unless it ends up lowering inflation. That's what's motivating the Fed right now. So, And by the way, I think there was a line in the minutes that said just that. So uh, yes, we'll watch those retail sales tomorrow um, very carefully, but watch the extent to which lower consumer spending ends up running through the inflation channel. Michelle, what would you add to that? <laughs> But they do, you know, the Fed does still think that demand is a leading indicator of inflation. And so they will look to, you know, to getting ahead of, of anticipating what's coming in, in with respect to inflation by judging to the extent that demand is weakening. But, Steve, I think you made a great point with respect to the bank earnings as well. There's, I, I think all of us are looking very much to the color uh, that we'll hear it, it, alongside those earnings releases, the results. Obviously, you know, what we're seeing in terms of de uh, deposit outflows, but even more, more importantly, what they're seeing about the impact on economic activity, on their own lending activity. Uh, I, I think that will add a lot of more recent, if you were up to date, information that all of us, you know, yeah. that it may fine tune all of our expectations about where we are in this economic cycle. Oh, sure. We should be able to fill in a lot of detail between the H-4-1 yeah. and the bank earnings and all the rest of it, even in just the next uh, 24, 48 hours. We'll leave it there with a thanks to you both, Michelle Gerard and Steve Leisman, for joining us with the markets, as I mentioned, around session highs. Dow's up 243. And a quick programming note, Steve's got an exclusive interview with new Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby tomorrow on Squawk Box around 8.30 a.m. Eastern. Now, speaking of the Fed, their rescue of SVB and Signature Bank last month may be calming markets for now. But my next guest warns the failures could be the opening act of a sovereign credibility crisis. Matt McLennan is here. He's co-head of the global value team at First Eagle Investments. He's the lead manager of the Morningstar, five-star rated First Eagle Global Fund, which is up about 7% year to date. Matthew, it's good to see you again. And, you know, I don't want to make it sound like you're coming in here just to explicitly make this warning about a sovereign crisis. But uh, tell me why this is on your radar now. Well, it's on my radar because every time you see a bank failure, um, it is a bit of a flash warning that there may be some systemic issues out there. And you need to look at where the banks are experiencing their loss problems. And the interesting thing this cycle is it's in sovereign securities and mortgage-backed securities, which are essentially backed by the sovereign. And uh, it's also, coincidentally, uh, the area where we've seen the greatest amount of debt growth this, this cycle after all of the uh, post-COVID stimulus. And so, we're sitting in a situation where the irony is for banks that um, you know sovereign debt is deemed to be uh, something that requires zero risk weighting because it doesn't have the same credit loss profile, but it does have duration exposure as we've seen, and there are many uh, his, you know examples throughout financial history uh, of dramatic losses in sovereign paper when there's bouts of unexpected inflation. So just kind of looking through the problems here, um, you know we have large deficits, obviously large current account deficits kind of always following the channel to make sure there's enough foreign demand for securities, which there kind of always seems to be. Against this backdrop, though, is, is it true that gold is one of your top holdings? And, and yes, you know, it's getting a lot of attention lately. But is this something you think is going to demonstrate outperformance or is it simply a store of value against the dollar or what, or what else you see playing out here? 
So, so gold is an important hedge for us. And um, the key issue with sovereign uh, risk is that um, if you can't chart a course back to fiscal balance, and it's hard to see it right now because we have these big deficits at a time of full employment, uh, then you risk confidence in the currency. And obviously gold um, is a sound uh, hedge against currency weakness. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that uh, uh, you know, the, the U.S. requires foreign buyers uh, because of its current account deficit. When we sanctioned Russian reserves uh, last year, um, that probably produced a question mark for a number of potential foreign buyers. And what we've seen over the last year is that foreign central banks have stepped up their pace of gold purchases uh, in, the, in the wake of that decision. And the other thing I would say is if you're the fiscal authorities in the United States right now, you're presented with two difficult paths. You can either embark on a, a program of fiscal tightening, but that would tip the economy into a deeper recession ahead of an election year. And right. so that seems unlikely. Uh, or uh, you can leave the fiscal spigots open as they are and risk a stagflationary environment like the 70s. Um, either recession with lower real rates or a stagflationary environment has been a pretty good backdrop for gold as a hedge asset. And, you know, I would just make the, the further argument here that even though gold is near its nominal highs, uh, relative to the level of U.S. money supply over the last 50 years or relative to the level of global equity valuations over the last 50 years, uh, gold is still trading below its 50-year averages. And so uh, we typically don't see gold peak out until the two-year rate is troughing out and it's only just rolled over. So hmm. we don't try to call these things with uh, precision because you can't. We recognize that gold is there to protect against the potential lost decade in stocks. Um, but it is the case that there are a number of factors that could support gold as we look out over the next 12 to 18 months here. Yeah, the dynamic has been moving in your direction for sure. Uh, you also obviously have a bunch of stocks uh, as well. It's not just a gold movie. Oracle is one of your big positions. Exxon, by the way, would you like to see this Exxon Pioneer deal happen? Well, let me just sort of say on stocks, you know, if the problem that we see today has been in the world of fixed nominal obligations, long-term treasuries, long-term mortgage-backed securities, one of the attractive things about certain stocks, particularly those that um, control um, strong market positions in stable end markets, is that they can generate 5 6% free cash flow yields that are more real in nature. Their underlying earnings over time can accrete uh, with the growth in GDP. And, and the growth of the economy. And so you can have that combination of yield and growth, which uh, protects you from unexpected inflation to a certain extent. Sure. Um, with respect to Exxon, um, I, I would just make the point that um, they're in a position to be predator right now. Their balance sheet's in great shape. Their earnings power is accreted because they invested in a counter-cyclical way. So they're able to look at these kinds of options at this stage in the cycle. And it would be accretive? Uh, depending on the price, obviously. Uh, but I think you've got a management team here that has um, a great sense of capital acumen. Uh, they have density uh, in key basins. And so uh, I would imagine uh, in a situation like this, there could be meaningful synergies. All right, Matt, we appreciate it so much. Thanks for all your time today. It's good to see you. Thank you so much. Matthew McLennan with First Eagle. Now, normally, the big banks set the tone for earnings season. And, of course, we'll hear from Bellwether J.P. Morgan tomorrow. But this season, the regional bank's results could be much more important. That's because they could help answer the question of whether deposit flight and bank runs will pick up again or not. Wells Fargo out with a new note highlighting which banks it thinks are best positioned when it comes to deposits and which may continue to struggle. Here to discuss is the analyst behind that note, Jared Shaw. Jared, welcome back. 
Uh, good afternoon. Thanks. Let's start with the banks that you think are, are well positioned here. Um, you know, uh, and, and which one? I mean, we're going to hear from PNC, I think, tonight or tomorrow. They start to trickle out. Then we're going to get a flood. So this is absolutely the number one question on a lot of investors' minds. Where do you have the most confidence? Yeah, so I think when you look at the mid-cap banks, uh, a lot of the banks have very granular deposits that are less likely to see as much pressure. Um, we look at the banks that are more entrenched in their regions, uh, in strong geographies that have more of the retail and core commercial operating accounts. Um, the mid-cap banks lend to these people and these businesses, and they get the full relationship, whereas the largest banks aren't quite as active in middle market lending. So we do think that these deposits have a propensity to stay. Um, out of our group, we highlighted Webster, First Interstate, and Columbia as being in a position that should see uh, decent deposit flows, should have a granular base, um, and, and should benefit. You know, one thing I'd point out, the average account size for the mid-cap banks is $41,000. Hmm. When you look at that compared to Silicon Valley at $1.1 and Signature at $500,000, and First Republic at $200,000, uh, those are very concentrated um, deposit bases, whereas the average bank is much smaller, uh, much more granular. So we think that there will be uh, the ability to keep funding those loans and those balance sheets. Is there a permanent hit to uh, earnings power with some of these names? The, all of the, the your three picks, by the way, all in the green today. But we know these names are still below where they were pre uh, SVB. Is there this sense that no matter which way the wind blows this quarter, their deposits are going to be much more uh, costly now? Uh, their future earnings power is going to be, you know, lessened. Yeah, for sure. So, so the the deposits, but also the funding costs are going up. So we assume that most of these banks are drawing down on other sources of wholesale funding, whether that's the uh, FHLB or the new bank term funding facility, or even the uh, Fed discount window. So those are going to increase the cost of funds. Um, I think we're also going to see banks sitting on a lot of excess liquidity or additional cash on their balance sheet. So that's going to put pressure on net interest margins as well. But when you look at the actual cost of deposits, um, those have been going up. Uh, we assume that the beta on those is still, uh, the terminal beta is still roughly where they were before, but we may accelerate to that uh, terminal beta faster than we were expecting before. So that, then finally, why do names, I mean, Bank of the Ozarks comes up sometimes for its uh, office exposure and other things, but that's on your list. Bank United, PacWest, why these three in particular? in terms of yep. places people might want to watch for more deposit flight? Sure. So all these banks have higher loan-to-deposit ratios. They have less flexibility in terms of being able to see deposits flow out. And they're all uh, three dependent more on wholesale deposits. So uh, you are going to see likely uh, higher funding costs at those banks, and they're not going to um, have much choice. So as, as you look at that high loan-to-deposit ratio, uh, they have a bigger need for uh, funding in the immediate term. So that's just going to put pressure on margin and on, on earnings as well. Yeah, well, these dates will be circled on the earnings calendar uh, to the extent that we have them or that they, they don't keep moving around. Jared, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you with this preview. Great. Thanks a lot. Jared Shaw with Wells Fargo. Coming up, not just tech rallying big time this year. The restaurant stocks have staged to come back as well. We'll talk about the name City says could climb even higher, including this one already up 23 percent so far since January. Plus, it's not typical for companies to be accused of underspending, but that's what one energy watcher says is going on in the oil space. We'll have more on what that means for oil prices and potential deal making in the months to come. The exchange is back right after this. 
From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. While everyone is focusing on that big tech rally we've seen so far this year, the restaurant stocks have been quietly rallying, too. Chipotle, that was the name we just teased. It's up more than 20 percent this year. Chili's parent Brinker up more than 15 percent. That's just two of them. And analysts at City think there's even more potential upside heading into earnings, despite all the negative concern on downward revisions. Joining me to explain is City analyst John Tower. John, it's good to have you. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Kelly, for having me. I appreciate it. Is this just a, you know, a, a, a dead cat bounce <laughs> off of a bad 2022? Or is there something going on here where people see improving fundamentals? There's a few factors at play. First, I would start with the year we were lapping Omicron from last year, which was going to be a, a known tailwind coming into the year. But favorable weather really kicked things off nicely into January and, frankly, across the U.S. for much of February as well. So I think that was a boon to the restaurant industry, helped quite a bit. On top of that, you have fairly high levels of pricing across the space that's helping quite a bit. But I think taking a step back, too, and thinking about what's happening from a macro perspective, we've seen historically around times of consumer duress, particularly during recessions, where there's been a fairly powerful wallet share shift between durables and and services, specifically restaurants. And what we've noticed historically in the past five recessions in the U.S., there's been about a a 200 basis point or so uh, average share shift between durables and restaurants to the benefit of restaurants. Hmm. And so that might be taking place as well right now. Not certain, but what we have seen is that the industry has done quite well to start 2023 And we don't necessarily see reason for that to let up anytime soon. I mean, comparisons get slightly more challenging going into the back half of the year, but there's no red flags popping up immediately suggesting that this is going to slow down. I mean, just to rattle off some of the highlights, we've got McDonald's up 9% in a month, Red Robin up 38% in a month. It's almost doubled in the past three months. Domino's up 11% in a month. Texas Roadhouse has doubled in a month. Restaurant brands up 10%, Chipotle up 10%, Jack in the Box. You know, on the one hand, a moment ago, we were talking about more signs of a downturn and how card spending is showing pressure for the month of March. And on the other hand, we're talking about restaurants of all things with higher prices and is a super discretionary purchase. I mean, why why is this area or is it just the big chains holding up? It just seems like this is flying in the face of other evidence we're getting. And maybe we'll see with the retail sales report tomorrow. Yeah, look, I, I it goes back to that wallet share shift. I think consumers it or jobs are the most important thing. Right. Yeah. And ultimately, jobs have been hanging in there relatively well. Wages have continued to grow. And that if consumers have 
kind of tapped out on spending on durables, simply put the idea of maybe upgrading something in your home, you've already either done that during COVID or maybe you're starting to look at the environment and saying, I don't necessarily need to do that right now, something that's a big ticket item. However, I still have some money in my pocket. I still am getting an income because I have a job. True. I'm going to go out and treat myself to a restaurant visit, whether that's your quick service operator or your sit-down restaurant. Yeah. Let's talk uh, Chipotle is your uh, number one stock in, well, in terms of positive catalyst and brinker. Why, why these two in particular? Yeah. We'll start with Chipotle. Chipotle, um, frankly, they're the footfall numbers that we follow for the space, and in particular, this brand look very healthy to start 2023. We think that's going to carry over into the second quarter. Uh, specifically, they launched a product in mid-March called Chicken El Pastor. We think that's going to be a very strong product for them. It already has. It, it ha- kicked off mid-month, and you could see it in the data. One, two, they're working maniacally on driving throughput at the stores and getting everything teed up such that the second quarter throughput will likely try and get back to levels they saw pre-COVID hmm. uh, under under Brian Nickel. And I think those two factors alone will help the same stores piece of the story. They still got unit growth and that high single, low double digit clip. Mm-hmm. So it's a very attractive story from my standpoint. They put up phenomenal returns at the store level. Chipotle lanes are still in their early days in terms of growth and accounting for the story. And they're still only half, less than halfway there to their North American TAM. And we haven't even discussed the idea of them getting outside of the U.S., at least in terms of scale to True. this point. So yeah, there's four, that. 40 Go times ahead. PE, I was just going to say. You know, Brinker, we've run out of time. So I'll leave it to you. I'll say okay. Cole City if you want the details. And, yes. <laughs> and maybe John will tell you. John, it's great to have you on today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate the time. John Tower. As we head to break, some new reports circulating on what's being called one of the largest leaks of classified documents in decades. They're already raising concerns about Ukraine's battlefield strategy and angering allies like South Korea. The latest on how it happened and where it might have come from. Next. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're near session highs. Dow's up 274. We've really seen markets uh, rallying all throughout the session on the back of that weaker-than-expected PPI and jobless claims data. S&P's up a percent, 4131. NASDAQ leading the way, up 1.6% today. Now, take a look at shares of Delta Airlines, down about a percent now after missing on the top and bottom lines. It's their third EPS miss in four quarters and second revenue miss in three. But CEO Ed Bastian brushed off those concerns on our air this morning, highlighting Delta's continued strong cash flow. The bigger story of all is our cash flow. The 10 highest booking days in our history, all within the March quarter. Free cash flow after CapEx of $2 billion within the quarter. So this franchise is intact. The health of the franchise is doing quite strongly. And we're really getting ready for a strong summer and spring season. 
Indeed, the street is somewhat reassured by Delta's projection of record advance bookings ahead of that peak summer travel season. Their strong guidance shares are pacing for the fifth negative week in six, but still hanging on to about a one percent gain for the year. Let's turn now to Washington with new reports circulating about that huge leak of classified government information. Kayla Tausche has the latest. Kayla. Kelly, two U.S. officials tell NBC News that the suspected leaker of troves of classified documents is Jack Teixeira, a 21-year-old who served in the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts National Air Guard. An arrest, these officials tell NBC News, is imminent. The New York Times first reported the identifying information about Mr. Teixeira, who served as the leader of a chat group on Discord with about 20 to 30 other members, mostly teenage boys, and that a group member began distributing classified documents from his job starting several months ago. According to Bellingcat, those documents later ended up on other threads on 4chan and Telegram. Earlier this morning in Ireland, President Biden said a breakthrough in the investigation was close and said this when asked about his concerns with the situation. I'm not concerned about the leaking news. I'm concerned that it happened. But there's nothing contemporaneous that I'm aware of that is of great consequence. The fact that the U.S. government was not aware of the leaks until just before press reports surfaced raises serious questions about how much more information could have gotten out there. When asked whether the leak was contained, NSC spokesman John Kirby said earlier this week, we truly do not know. Kelly? It's hard to imagine it's contained when it's been circulating on, you know, these social media channels for months. And some of the documents then later appeared to be maybe doctored and shared by Russians, uh, for instance. So uh, assessing the legitimacy is going to be difficult of each individual report. Also, strangely, Kayla, some of them look like they had been folded and then unfolded and had, you know, kind of gorilla glue marks on them, raising questions. And let's not forget the larger picture here. They're revealing what at the time were serious deficiencies in Ukraine's air defense and its capabilities to carry out this spring initiative and its need for a lot more support from the West. So between that and then the South Koreans upset, I mean, there's already been a lot of fallout here. Yeah, a lot of fallout, Kelly, even though the president is trying to downplay some of those concerns. You mentioned South Korea, and in one of those alleged documents, uh, there was a discussion about whether South Korea would, in fact, be providing much-needed artillery to Ukraine. And some of these documents suggested that, uh, that South Korea was torn over whether to do that. And other allied leaders have been making comments about the possibility of that in just the last few days. But, Kelly, you should note that a lot of these allies, when asked about the documents and what it means about the relationship between the U.S. and these countries, they say that there there is a lot of question about the legitimacy, that they've been altered, that in some cases there's misinformation included in the in the documents. So clearly it's going to be a while before we have these nailed down. And, and it's also clearly going to uh, create a lot of uh, discussion and policy processes within the White House when they figure out what is known about their strategy in Ukraine and whether they need to change some of that now that the information is out there. Right, exactly. And maybe that's the only way we're really going to know the impact this has had is if we start to see big reports of a lot more missile assistance or aircraft assistance to Ukraine.
Yeah, possibly, Kelly, although we should note that there, while there have been, there's been willingness by some other countries, like notably France, to send aircraft to Ukraine, uh, there is still not a willingness within the Biden administration to do that. That could change over the coming months as there's a pressure campaign by some of these other countries as the war goes on uh, beyond a year, a year and a half, and it just begins to drag on. But it's hard to see how President Biden's resolve could be softened on that front. But of course, uh, anything could happen. Yeah. Kayla, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on this fast-moving story today. Kayla Tausche. Coming up, oil is pacing for a fourth straight positive week, despite WTI moving lower today. We'll get some top picks in the energy space and talk about potential deal-making. That's next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Warren Buffett just told Becky Quick that we're going to, quote, need oil for a lot, lot longer and reiterated his bullish views on Occidental. This comes as deal making in the oil space may be starting to pick up some steam with ExxonMobil reportedly eyeing Pioneer. And if Exxon makes a move, could Chevron be next? Bill Smead told us yesterday, wouldn't it be ironic if Buffett ended up having Chevron by Oxy and he ended up with over 20 percent of the much larger combined company, which is all very possible. Let's ask my next guest. He's an expert in the oil space and he will tell us where he thinks this could all be headed. Stan Major is principal and portfolio manager at Hotchkiss and Wiley. Stan, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you too, Kelly. And I know you focus on some of the smaller players, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You know, a lot of free cash flow, you know, a lot of buybacks and all the rest of it. But in the broad sort of canvas here, do we need this consolidation? Why do you think it would happen? And what would the impact be? Sure. Yeah. Consolidation makes a ton of sense in the energy industry. If you look at uh, the U.S., there's a lot of operators in each basin, uh, you know, 20, 30 operators in each basin. A lot of them are smaller players. Uh, as you get bigger, uh, the, the operations get more efficient. So you have trucks driving by each other, uh, duplicative processes. So economies of scale make a ton of sense in energy. So consolidation makes a lot of sense. Uh, in general, uh, financially, it makes sense. It's very good for shareholders because when you combine the two, uh, the combination is more profitable than it originally was. Uh, usually what holds these things up is sometimes it's the management teams, it's the board of directors, uh, but it makes a lot of financial and operational sense to consolidate. You know, when we talked with Bill Speed about this yesterday, there's some who have said, well, would a Biden administration allow for uh, big deals in the energy space? I, Bill joked, you know, hey, if it raises the oil price, that's kind of the goal anyway. It would hasten the energy transition. I mean, do you think that would be an outcome here? Uh, it's possible. Um, uh, in general, when companies do consolidate, uh, the production can be lower than it, w- it was originally with the with the uh, two companies uh, separately. But I would say, in general, that, you know, this is a commodity business. There shouldn't be any kind of trade restrictions or monopoly issues. So um, it, it makes a lot of sense to happen. Regulators shouldn't have an issue with it, and I don't think it will have that significant of an impact. You are among many concerned about underinvestment in this area. Uh, just talk through that. I mean, and investors obviously are trying to kind of benefit from that in the near term, but no one really wants to see it get to a point where oil's at 200 um, because we don't simply don't have the supply. Although it's bearish trading behavior over the past three, six uh, months anyway, sometimes makes you wonder if those assumptions are all too bearish uh, to begin with. Sure. So a couple things to think about. With all the talk about a weak economy, uh, uh, electric vehicle sales, uh, hurting oil demand, uh, work from home, we are at an all-time high in oil consumption right now. So we're consuming more than we ever had 
with all those factors. So oil demand is growing. Uh, populations grow. Uh, people get wealthier. They consume more energy. The issue is that with rising demand, we're not spending enough money on supply. The easiest way to think about that is compare 10 years ago, 2013, with 2023, where we are today. Uh, 10 years ago, we had a smaller market um, and we were spending more money. So 2023 versus 2013, we're 15% larger oil market, but we're spending activity-wise probably 20% less. That means that we are probably underspending as demand grows and supply. We're seeing a lot of issues, whether it's in OPEC, we're seeing some productivity issues even in the Permian, which is growing. Uh, this means that it could be very difficult from a supply-demand perspective. The issue becomes most oil projects are long lead time. If we get in a situation where we're undersupplied, it's difficult to get out of it other than very high prices. Sure. APA, PCE Energy, I mean, these. why are stocks like these still your favorites? Sure. So if you look at how much free cash flow they're earning, so a proxy for, for earnings, um, they're throwing off roughly in this, in this commodity price range. So without a spike, they have about, we would estimate about 14% free cash flow yields. Uh, in the case of APA, they have about $16 a share. It's a $40 stock. They have about $16 a share in assets that are currently not producing earnings. So we call them hidden assets. Uh, it's their assets in Suriname, uh, tax loss carry forwards, uh, an LNG contract that's not priced in. Um, those things all add up um, to make it even more attractive. Uh, PDC is a Colorado operator. I generally will trade at a discount because it's in Colorado. We think the regulatory issues there are manageable. And both these companies are buying back a lot of stock. So it compounds that undervaluation. So with those high free cash flow yields, probably the best you can find in the market. Uh, they're buying back stock, so it's compounding. Yeah. And you protect yourself from a spike in oil prices. Uh, well, it, it, you make a compelling case. <laughs> Stan, it's good to have you back and check in with you again. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Kelly. Stan Major with Hotchkiss and Wiley. Still ahead, Amazon went from one of the worst performers on the S&P yesterday to one of the best today, up nearly 4%. Why investors are cheering CEO Andy Jassy's big bets and bold moves, that's next. Before we hit break, let's also check on shares of Tupperware, which are surging 26% today on rumors that Ryan Cohen may be involved after a tweet uh, indicating he was on the phone with was, was once a great American brand. This after two days ago, Tupperware warned it could soon go out of business. Uh, you can see the drop there. This, the equity is trading at just about $1.65. The shares are down 92% over the past year. Last February, you'll recall Bill Miller right here on the exchange said he was bullish on the stock. Uh, when he checked in on this over the weekend, he said in an email, I am continually amazed at how often and spectacularly wrong you can be in this business and still do very, very well. Tupperware's market cap was nearly $5 billion in 2013, and it is $74 million today. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. Time for today's Tech Check. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy out with his annual letter to investors this morning. It's a tradition at Amazon. Jeff Bezos was always a must-read. Jassy, with a number of big moves, an unconventional cloud strategy, cutting underperforming business units, and saying Amazon needs to do better in grocery and in core retail. He also played up the importance of the company's AI chips. Our own Steve Kovac is here to discuss. Steve, I don't know where to begin. What jumped out at you? Yeah, let, let's talk about the cloud, because he had some really interesting things to say about AWS when he spoke with our Andrew Ross working this morning. Let's have a listen to what he said, and then we'll talk about that. Other times that 
investment strategy leads to things that are maybe maybe right. not as obvious to people. AWS was a good example of that. Um, I think that um, fewer people might have guessed that we would build a low Earth orbit satellite that we call Kuiper. But I, if you look at the need, there are hundreds of millions of households who have and businesses that have no connectivity to the Internet. Like Kelly, the idea here is they're in, they're going to continue investing in things that might seem a little crazy right now. Space satellites, they're going to still go down on AWS, which they have to, by the way. That's their profit center. Right. They have to keep that up. What was interesting to me, what he said about AWS to Andrew, though, and throughout the letter was, look, People, our, our customers need to spend less, just like yes. we need to optimize, they need to optimize too. And we're willing yeah. to eat some revenue uh -huh. growth if it means hanging on to those customers in the long term. By the way, Microsoft is saying the same thing. Okay, so this, I thought as well, was one of the most interesting. This is a, a clear choice that they are making to help their customers spend less on Amazon's right. cloud offerings. Now, I understand the point that, hey, you get people to ratchet down, they're less likely to cancel altogether and, and walk away. I just don't know in the long run, I mean, these are the essentials that people need arguably the most, cloud right. services for their business. Do you really want to help them get better at <laughs> doing less with your core product at a time like right. this? Right, but we keep talking about efficiency this year, and that's what that is. And look, if they don't do that, those customers, they're going to go to Google. They're going to go to Microsoft. So that is what they're trying to protect against. We have the biggest market share. We need to hang on to that market share. Therefore, if it means you know, giving up some revenue growth in the short term, the hope being in the longer term, they stick around. And when they're willing to spend more, they're going to spend that with us. That's what he's saying. And that's what makes periods of recession, honestly, is what tech is maybe soon everyone else going through. So interesting. It's when that churn can start to happen, and by the when way, people lean right. in and get those opportunities. So it's And you can only do that with cloud. Before, you had to do this on-prem. You had these big sure. servers sitting in your office, you couldn't scale those down. Here, you can be more dynamic and, and adjust your needs in the cloud world. As mentioned, he also says they need to get better at grocery. Whole Foods isn't big enough. They're trying with Amazon Fresh, I think it's called, right. Core Retail. He says they're trying to work on some of the profitability issues there. Uh, but I think the other thing to highlight is what he said about their AI chips. Yeah. You know, we don't talk a lot about this being a company when we talk about what are the AI plays. And yes, it's buried within a much larger business, but how significant is this that they can now help customers with these AI issues? Yeah. It's early right now. So thematically, though, it's interesting. So these, these new AI uh, products they announced today, which is very limited, only a few people are using it, like Deloitte is one of their first customers, for example. But they're really positioning themselves, Kelly, as like the Switzerland, like this of, <laughs> of AI. Whereas if let, let's say you're, you're going to start a startup, an AI startup, KellyEvans.ai, you're not going to go to Microsoft and use their cloud because they're open AI. You don't want to give your competitor money. Hmm. You're going to go to Google or Google, same thing. They're, they're working True. on their own AI stuff. So you want to go to the neutral pl uh, platform here. That's going to be but AWS. But they're also working on AI, aren't they, Amazon? Yeah, exactly. They, they have these large language models right. that you can tap into if you want to build on that. Or if you're going to start your own startup, you can do it. And th there's a little bit of irony here, too, because when retailers started moving to the cloud, Walgreens is a perfect example. They're not going to go to their competitor, Amazon, and True. give them money. They went to Microsoft. So there's this really interesting dynamic going on here in cloud world yeah. where you don't want to give your competitor money, but you need someone, and so you go to the other guy. You can stay in business because you're so diversified. Exactly. People have to go somewhere else. Steve, thanks. Thank we you. We appreciate it. Again, Amazon, one of the best stocks today, up 4% as the Dow's near session highs up 310. Still ahead, both Bitcoin and Coinbase seeing huge gains this year. Coin shares more than doubling, but one analyst warns investors that crypto could be in for a rough awakening. He tells us why next. Dow's up 306. We're back after this. NASDAQ's up nearly 2%.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin has surged back above 30,000 this year, and you'd think that would be a positive for one of the last remaining crypto exchanges, Coinbase. But average trade, uh, daily trading volumes on the platform are actually lower so far in April than in March. And it's a sign that retail traders aren't buying in. Here now with more is Mizuho analyst Dan Dolov. It's good to see you again. Dan, welcome. My pleasure. And I love what you're unpacking here because there's a lot more to the story. What do you think is going on in this sort of cat and mouse game in this crypto chase with Bitcoin up to 30? I think what's happening right now is, is basically, I mean, the analogy here is casino. Mm. And what's happening is big institutional investors that have a vested interest in retail investors coming into the trading world are pumping oxygen into the casino floor, hoping to lure in retail traders. But retail traders are really smart. They're not biting. <laughs> And Coinbase's volumes are basically a reflection of retail trading, and it's basically dead. And that's what's happening. It's not working. This is so fascinating to me, the way that the pandemic has created these two warring communities where, you know, institutionals are shorting something and retail goes and, you know, kills them on the upside. And now here we have institutions trying to bring retail traders back into crypto. And you say it's not working. Why? I mean, they've gotten really smart. I think what happens, and this is a great question you're asking, if you go back to the, you know, dot-com bubble or any other bubble, once retail gets burnt with something, like they got burnt with crypto going you know, down, it takes years for retail to come back. In this situation, because we're dealing with air, mm-hmm. and those cryptocurrencies are, those tokens are basically air, and in my view, they're worth nothing. Mm. Retail's really, retail's gotten smart. They've been burnt. They don't want to come back. They don't want to lose money. That's why they're not biting. And that's why you see that bifurcation between Bitcoin in volumes. I, I still know some of the bulls in this crypto, the retail crypto bulls. Most of them would say, listen, we're buy and hold at this point. We have what we have. We're not, maybe we're not buying more, but we're also not selling. They'll say, look at Ether. That's where all the excitement is. It did that uh, Chappella upgrade, I get, you know, and it's over 2K again today. So what about the idea that there doesn't have to be a lot of trading activity because people are just going to hang on to this like gold forever? Correct. And that works for Bitcoin. And I think that, you know, if anyone survives to tell the story of this era is Bitcoin, but it doesn't work for Coinbase. And this is important. You know, we have a $30 price target. I think the stock's going to get cut in half. Coinbase makes money when people come in and out of the casino and put money, you know, on the, on the, um, you know, on the roulette. When no one's trading, Coinbase doesn't make money. So I think that's the issue. Sure. You can hold for it forever, hold on it for forever. Hopefully it goes up. But Coinbase is not going to make money in that situation. Institutions are not as lucrative as retail traders. They demand much smaller margins and that kind of thing. So where do we go from here in this story then? What other levers can Coinbase pull, for instance? I think what they're going to do right now is they've got a wealth notice from the SEC. I think they're very busy right now actually defending some of those businesses, right? So they're, they're on the defense right now. So I don't think they can do a lot. There's not much they can do. The staking is under pressure. Their uh, altcoins is under pressure. I think they're pretty much in trouble. And the stock going up today it just makes me wonder what, you know, why people are actually buying this today because you know it's going to be a rough awakening. So I, don't, I think they're out of options. Well, we, we're clear on where you stay. You anger the crypto community, uh, Dolov, with these remarks. I need security. <laughs> no, I don't think it's to that point. Dan Dolovo with Mizuho, thank you for your time today. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.